0: And so it will require, as I said in Middletown, us getting comfortable with uncomfortable conversations and us doing things outside of what we typically would do. But each of us has a role to play. This is us doing our role. We listened, we heard you, and now we are acting. We are acting on it. May George Floyd's family, George White, the man who was lynched right here in Delaware, for every single person who are our ancestors, our elders, our contemporaries, our children, and our children yet to be born. We want justice. We want peace. Thank you.
1: If you're listening to this podcast, I don't need to tell you about what's happened in the United States since former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. The protests that have erupted across our country against the racism and violence ever present in American policing of black communities have thrown state and city governments off balance and may be forcing a reckoning with many of our institutions. Delaware was just as affected by these protests as it has been with racism throughout its history. In Wilmington, we can show you a large group of people who blocked Interstate 95 in both
2: directions.
1: Protesters in Wilmington, Dover, and other cities spoke of our state's own victims of police violence, including Jeremy McDole, a black man who was shot and killed by Wilmington police in 2015 while sitting in his wheelchair. In speeches, at marches, in community meetings, on the phone with elected officials, the public asked for real policy changes the Delaware Legislative Black Caucus was listening. To prevent the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, Delaware's General Assembly has only met virtually since March. However, last week, dozens of legislators and statewide elected officials made the trip to Legislative Hall and stood behind the Black Caucus as they announced their Justice for All agenda. This package of legislation is a start down the road to reforming policing and fighting back against institutional racism in Delaware. We spoke to three members of the Black Caucus about this initiative, their perspectives on policing and racism, and Black leadership in Delaware. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count.
2: You all know, I was a cop for 30 years. This hurts. This hurts. I've worked in all types of communities. All types, throughout the state, throughout Newcastle County.
1: That's Representative Franklin Cook. He's the only member of the Black Caucus who has served in law enforcement.
2: But one thing for sure, what happened, we need police officers, all the unions, noble, BPA, FOP, come out strong, get on television, CNN, I don't care where you're at, and say it's wrong. It's wrong. Well, you know, um, I I, I think with with those who are are silent are finally coming out to say things. And not only just to say things, but to participate on what's going on. In, in the world today. It was a worldly issue. It's not just the United States, but a worldly issue. And uh, I, I think it's time for change and a lot of transparency. Okay, that's one thing we have to do with our police departments, be transparent, and a lot of training, and training and learning about the people in their neighborhoods, the people in their cities, people in their counties, and the people in their states. They really must learn how to compromise and work with their, their neighborhoods. Well, there has been some changes uh, in recruitment. There's been changes in training. You know, I came on in 1982. When I came on the police department, there's only seven African-American males in the Newcastle County Police Department when I came on. How big was the department? The department's big, like, maybe about 175. And, uh, you know, I came in in 1982, and my first assignment was working in a predominantly white neighborhood, like in Brookside, Brookside in Newark. And I didn't even know about neighborhoods back then. I just stayed around the city of Wilmington in the suburbs of Newcastle because I was born and raised in, in Dunley. And, uh, you know, after a while being in the police department, I moved to being a, uh, a community guy by being on a horse. I was the first African-American in Newcastle County Police Department to be on a horse. And that meant being in my neighborhood. We had, we had programs that the horses had to ride in the neighborhoods and become um I would say community ambassadors, and also using the people in the community to come forward and make a relationship, and making a relationship go very, very well in Newcastle County. Then I came into the FOP, which is our union, and I came in as a chaplain. And when I came in as a chaplain, I moved to being the vice president and did several contracts and also, you know, was the grievance chair at one time. So I know about the Office of Bill of Rights and how it works. I've been there. I've been through the trenches. So, you know, I do have some experience. I am so proud, and I'm going to get to work reference to running this, uh, establishing this law uh, enforcement accountability task force, and, and I'm ready to get to work. And, and we really have to follow up and follow through. We cannot let this die, and we got some work to do. we got to cross our T's and dot our I's and, and get to work. So what are the goals of this task force, and who do you want to include? Okay, Uh, it's a body will include a wide range of uh, stakeholders from law enforcement to advocates and impacted citizens. I want to be clear, impacted citizens have to be on this task force. They have to be heard and they are going to have to to implement some of these things that we're changing and have a voice. Very, very important. And uh, we'll consider the issues and, and the proposals regarding to the use of force, civil rights, Protections, uh, transparency, and and community policing—that's what we're here to do. And um, you know, we got to look at use of force. We got to look at civil rights and transparency. Uh, We got to look at the officers' bill of rights, um, police shootings, videos, pictures, uh, forfeitures—a whole whole line of things that we're going to have to look at. Are very that 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 affects black and brown people. I'm sure that this is gonna be
1: something you're gonna really dive into in the task force, but just sitting here, I wanna get your thoughts on the fact that I think a lot of people right now, people demonstrating in the streets, uh, people calling for change, don't have confidence in the idea of reforming a policy or changing a law because they have the idea whether this is right or wrong, that a lot of police officers act because they don't fear that they will face consequences, right? And, be, and you know, Eric Garner was killed with a chokehold that was banned by the NYPD. You know, a lot of these policies are in place around the country, and how do you think that we can sort of break that cycle and make sure that when we put a policy in place, we are confident that it's going to prevent that policy being broken by a police officer.
2: You, you have to hold that chief and that police department accountable. And the only way they can be held accountable is that every step of the way is transparent. And it has to be transparent for everyone to see and hear and know what's going on. So I think that's the first step you have to be. It's transparent. You can't slide it underneath the rug. I think uh, having a list of police officers that, that that shouldn't be police officers or, you know, a, a list, a, a not-to-hire list, you're going to have to do that. Because don't forget, in Dover, they had a problem, and they let that cop go. And another police department hired him. Hired him right back, and then he had problems again.
1: The police officer Rep Cook is talking about is Thomas Webster who was acquitted of assault after being captured on a police dashcam holding a black man named Latif Dickerson at gunpoint, then kicking him in the head and breaking his jaw. After being reinstated by the city of Dover, Webster was later hired by the Greensboro, Maryland police. He was fired again last year after 19-year-old Anton Black died in his custody. Black's family and
2: local activists
1: still have questions about the nature of his death.
2: So, you know, you have to be have a lot of transparency and, and build that trust. And it's going to take steps to build it because it's been going on for so long, so long. And I think recruitment and retention and getting... Officers of color, it, let me tell you something, it's very, very difficult, and, and I know it because I try to recruit a lot of people, and it's hard to be two things in America right now. Teachers and police officers, people don't want to do that right now. Very difficult, but we need them. We need that to, to build our country, to, to, to help our young folks, to help our children and grandchildren. We, we need that. So I think that's a big hurdle that we have to do, because our people of color, uh, we need them in our, in our neighborhoods so you can see, that they look like us. They look like me, and we in our neighborhood to, to to bring safety.
1: Briefly, you said you were uh, a grievance
2: chair. Chair as, yes, for, for, for the, uh, the, the number FOP. five FOP. What, yes. did, what did that include? That that include when uh, anytime you have a, anytime you have an officer has a trouble or any complaints, you have to have representation when you go there to to hear the complaint to investigate the complaint. And then uh, it goes through discipline, disciplinary procedures and then it comes out to training. So all those things we have to look at and make sure they're implemented and done correctly. And sometimes even in the court of law.
1: I think that's, that's actually a really unique perspective because um, I know that police unions have also come under fire in the last couple of weeks because uh, in a lot of places, an officer who has been accused of mis- misconduct and suspended or fired, um, many of them are reinstated because of police union actions. And I want to know, since, since you were actually part of that process, do you think that that needs to be changed in some way or,
2: or the system needs to be changed? Well, well, what I'm saying is that a lot of times it's not transparent, and I think now it's going to be. It's a, it's a new, it's a new day. It, it, it wasn't transparent. I mean, you have lawyers dealing with it. You have that, and you have that right in America. But I'm just saying that you know the time's going to come where there's transparency. Uh, they get to look at the discipline, look at their records. You're allowed to see the records of what's going on. And also, you know, when you come to body cameras, then don't forget, body cameras also save the police officer. So that that body camera works 50-50. You don't hear that how many times people uh, violate police officers and that camera and make a complaint that's just opposite of what they said. So it it works on both ends, and that's what we need, things that work on both ends, and that's from being working together. We have to work together on this issue. on on this police issue, and I think transparency is the key.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit uh, away from police, and I want to talk about something that um, I think that the existence of a black caucus is something that we've really missed, and I don't think that any of us here in the General Assembly really knew it until you guys really stepped up over the last two weeks. Um, And it it was really, really incredible to see how many members of the General Assembly, how many members of state leadership showed up, to support you guys here, and I won't. This is your first term as a legislator, yes, it is. but you know what? What are your feelings on being able to step into this role? Right? And well, your,
2: your well, team? you know, this is where leadership steps in. Accountability steps in. People out there voted me into office, and they rely on me. And the minute I can't do what I'm supposed to do for the people in the 16th district, or even in the state of Delaware, up and down from Claymont down to Selbyville, I gotta do what I gotta do for the people, for everyone. So that's what I counted on. I never was prepared, but this really brings your leadership up. And now we put the rubber meets the road. Can't talk it, you gotta walk it, and here it is. And I gotta do it, if this is what I'm gonna do for the people.
0: Body cameras. That's the legislation that I shall be passing with those standing behind me. See, 2020 is a year of clarity, perfect vision, and the cameras will give us just that. As a filmmaker, I think about the lens and how the lens will be able to shift the conversation that we can protect both the community and the
1: police. You're hearing Representative Sherry Dorsey Walker, the Vice Chair of the Black Caucus.
0: We have an opportunity to transform all of our communities. We see the health inequalities we see the economic despair, we see a failed education system, but we have a commitment from our state, our head of state, to shift all three of those things that I just mentioned. I think I mentioned it a little earlier, a lot of people think that this is just about police brutality. Police brutality was the thing that brought everything to the light because so much had been happening in great darkness. And what do I mean by that? And I mentioned it earlier today. When we're talking about health inequalities, when we're talking about economic empowerment opportunities, we're talking about a failed educational system, and to have a commitment from our governor, as well as all of our leaders in both the House and the Senate, to make a difference, as well as the Delaware Legislative Black Caucus. George Floyd's death ended up giving, it birthed a movement, and as we sit and we reflect on it, the one thing we can't stop being, I can't stop being black. I can't wake up every day and say, okay, well, today I won't be a woman of color. The rules are different for people of color every day. It's a its a struggle. Yet we, were, we rise above what we have to endure so that we can do the work that needs to be done. So when I look at there's a $150 million project going on in my district right now, How many black contractors are on that project? Schools are being renovated on the west side and the east side of Wilmington. Well, the legislators are African American. How many African American contractors are on these jobs?
1: And are they from the city of Wilmington?
0: And are they even from our community? So how do we shift the culture if we don't shift the economics? And then that shifts the educational system as well. So there has to be systemic changes because the institutional racism has been down through the years. Whether it was Jim Crow or before you and I were born or back to slavery times or when people of color couldn't vote, it's unprecedented to have eight people of color in the state house, excuse me, in legislative hall. Yet it happened in 2018. So we're moving toward changes, but it's important that we realize and recognize that the police brutality situation just brought everything to light.
1: I feel like over the last two weeks, Wilmington kind of woke up. There are cities with protest cultures, you know, there's protests outside the White House every single day, every day of the year, you know, and I've been to demonstrations in Wilmington where it's 100 white liberal people. And that is not what I've seen the last couple of weeks in Wilmington. Um, and I just get the impression that, you know, people in Wilmington haven't felt like it was worth it for them to speak out, but maybe now it is. And I just want to know what, what you've seen in your community. What I
0: see in Wilmington, but in particular on the West side, but I see it all throughout the city of Wilmington. I see the need and the desire for the systemic changes. I think people who have been oppressed for so long are starting to recognize that, oh my goodness, this was kind of like done to us, the way certain neighborhoods look, the way that certain communities are set up. And I think people are starting to recognize and realize, well, we have power here. We have the power to vote and we have the power to get things done. And people realize that they can speak truth to power, but do it in solidarity. So the thing that really impresses me the most is seeing people of all different races, religions, colors, creeds coming together for such a time as this. And that is the, the most impressive part about our beloved Wilmington.
1: So this process is just starting, but we saw a lot of members of the General Assembly, members of leadership, elected state officials out there with you today showing their support. As you're diving into this, what is the response you're getting from you know, the groups that you're going to need to help you get all this stuff across the finish line?
0: Well, to have our Attorney General standing with us today with the Delaware Legislative Black Caucus as we unraveled the Justice for All agenda speaks volumes to have the leadership on both sides, the House and the Senate standing with us, it also spoke volumes. But most importantly, having legislators from both sides of the aisle coming together for such a time as this, I think what happens is when people see that their leaders come together, then there's a willingness in the community to work together. So what we're seeing is a groundswell of support from various nonprofits, people who didn't feel like they had a voice speaking up and speaking out and letting everyone know that I'm here. And I think that's important because we need all of the voices in order to be able to shift the culture. And I see a willingness to work together, including law enforcement. And I don't want people feeling like all law enforcement is bad. I don't believe that. I believe we have we have community policing in the city of Wilmington. Before COVID, it was nothing to see an officer. I would be out with the officers, too, playing kickball with our young people in the community, playing basketball, walking the beat, and just talking to people, trying to get to know the neighbors. I have officers that walk my community with me, not to patrol, and granted, that's their job, but to get to know people, and that makes a difference. Yes, they have a job to do. I don't want to be dismissive of that, but to see People with a willingness to work together. And I commend WPD because I think they do a phenomenal job. I work with other law enforcement agencies, but not as closely as I do with WPD. So I can speak about what I know about. And to see their willingness to work together to bring about the systemic changes is phenomenal. And then you have Chief Tracy with a willingness to walk together, children, don't you get worried. That's major.
1: It kind of rubs me in a weird way to hear about the efforts that police have to make for community policing to go out while they're patrolling and play kickball with kids, because my experience as, you know, when I was a white kid in a, in a white working-class neighborhood in a white suburban neighborhood was, I just didn't see police. Do you, do you think that we need to, do, we think, do you think we need to start re-examining the, the presence of police in communities? You know, look at why they're there and what they're doing? When I was growing up in Wilmington, in particular on the west side,
0: we interacted with the police officers, but I don't remember as a child having negative interactions with the police, and I'll tell you why. Because the police lived in the neighborhoods. So the police were actually your neighbors, as, the, as were the firefighters, when the law changed, and Dover changed the law, and the residency requirement was shifted. That shifted the city, so you operate different where you live. It just, it's human nature. So if you're on duty and you're on patrol and you live on the west side of Wilmington, you're naturally going to just drive through the community and people know you. So I don't remember growing up and having negative interactions with the police. And that's an excellent question about over-patrolling. I don't know about that because I'm not a law enforcement officer. And I want to be fair because I don't know what they endorse. And I thought about that when I was driving here today from Wilmington, like what goes through their mind every day because the culture of neighborhoods has shifted and it's shifted through policy. Because I remember there was a lot, of, lot more stability on the west side of Wilmington, east side, north side, South Bridge. Then there was the scattered site situation And he had mixed income communities, and that shifted a little bit, too. And then you saw people who were opportunists, I guess, coming into the community. And, you know, if someone pays you cash for a year, you really don't care what they do in the property. But people who live on that block do care. So the police have to endure that kind of shift as well so it's 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 not an it's not an easy situation for them, but it's not an easy situation for the people who are peaceful, aren't causing any problems, but they may have a neighbor who does something or someone in the community who's doing something that causes the police to have to c- have a presence.
1: We saw leadership, the governor, the attorney general, rank and file members of the legislature standing back behind you behind the black caucus, letting you guys lead and I just wanna know what your thoughts are on the Black Caucus being able to step up.
0: The eight members of the Black Caucus, I'll tell you, eight is God's number of new beginnings. That's, in my faith, that's what we believe. So there are eight of us, and as you mentioned, this is a new beginning. Now, no one could have seen what was coming, but God knew and prepared us for it. You needed soldiers, we needed soldiers in Dover and we, the Legislative Black Caucus, are that. It doesn't mean that others aren't. But you needed the kind of leadership that we could bring, where you're not looking for the way that things have always been done in Dover prior to our arrival. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about the Delaware Way. Well, the Delaware Way didn't, we- didn't welcome people of color. And let's just be real about that. So it's interesting when you hear other legislators say the Delaware way, because it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> are you saying that or are you saying the genteel way? So it can be interpreted two different ways. So when you think about this particular moment, this moment is a movement and the movement required sacrifices and we literally have to sacrifice everything and put it all on the table with the hopes that, and, and I'm grateful that our leadership responded and said, we need to be involved in this. We need to have you spearheading this movement with our support. And that is a good feeling because to to be in this skin, it's not easy every day. I mean, it's... I love being a woman of color. I'm a proud black woman. But there are so many challenges. Yet, as I stated earlier, still we rise. And here we are in this moment, and we're standing shoulder to shoulder with Caucasians and standing as one. Now, granted, there's always going to be bumps and bruises and challenges. But you have people, as our speaker stated today... And as the President Pro Tem stated today, with a willingness to listen. They, they were really clear. We don't know what it's like to be African American, but we have a willingness to listen. And when you're listening, you're learning. Just like we learn from them. There's a lot that we don't know, but we sit, we listen, we learn. And it's better that way when we take the time to have the hard conversations, because that's how we grow. Because you can't grow if you don't
1: know. You know, the Delaware Way is this nebulous concept about compromise and working together. And um, But you're entirely right when you say the Delaware Way excludes people of color. And in my experience, this state has a very selective memory. That's, a, I think, a huge problem, is that we just have this selective memory where we decide to remember good things and ignore the really, really racist and troubled history that has existed here. This feels like maybe a moment that we can start to acknowledge our past, making sure that we don't forget it and work towards a better future. And I just want to know, are there any overarching goals that you have that you think that we can accomplish as a state and, you know, you can accomplish as a Black Caucus, as a a General Assembly?
0: The first thing is Senate Bill 191 and making people of color equal citizens and adding us to the Constitution. I mean, this is 2020, and it's going to take two sessions to make that happen, but as you saw today, there's a willingness from the governor to sign the legislation upon the 62 members passing it, and it would be my hope that all members of both chambers votes yes to, to help You can't change the history, okay? And you can't eliminate it. This was a slave state, to your point. And the descendants of the slave masters are currently in positions of power. The descendants of the slaves are currently in positions of power now too. Not as many, but you have at least eight of us. And the two worlds have collided. They started colliding in 2018. And as we grow as a state, and people start to gain an awareness of the history, like Wilmington had the longest occupation of the National Guard in 1968, before I was born. But to hear, before my father passed, and my uncle, and my, hear my mother talk about it, those weren't great times. Yet the one thing that my family always talked about is... We had each other. We had we had our own economic infrastructure. And ninety five ran right through that. See, I think what happened is no one anticipated that young Caucasians would be out there peacefully protesting with young African Americans and Hispanics. And it's all and the scripture tells you and a child will lead them. It's always young people. Who move things, who move mountains. You need the strength of the young and the wisdom of the old. You need people to recognize that we have a sordid past in the state. But you have to first start talking about that and then seeing how policies have kept people of color in oppressed conditions. And now we have an opportunity to shift that. And we can shift it through, as I mentioned, Senate Bill 191. We can also shift it with the justice for all agenda. But we can shift it by having those hard conversations because the shift has to start with the heart of the man or the woman. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with systemic issues, but we're also dealing with heart issues. And it's going to take God to help us.
3: The hardest thing I've ever had to do is educate my son on the current events, my six-year-old son, and to respond to the follow-up questions and still try to empower him at the same time, but not promise him that he'll never be a victim.
1: Representative Melissa Minor-Brown is one of the youngest members of Delaware's House of Representatives and the Black Caucus. For a
3: child, for anyone, but definitely for a child, it's been a very emotional few weeks and it's, it's actually hitting me differently than it ever has before. I think it's because my son is old enough to understand all of this and have having a six year old son actually watching what's going on on CNN, watching what's going on in the world, you know, and when he comes in the room, I don't turn the channel because I feel guilty if I don't, expose him to it then I'm I'm not I'm not helping him by not exposing him to it because I don't know when he's going to be exposed to it on his own so knowing that he is actually watching this he's understanding this and I have to be able to educate him on what's going on and he's at an age where he's going to ask questions so as he asks questions I have to come up with responses and then there's questions to his responses and You know, I I have prayed so much over the past few weeks because I don't I have to still try to empower him to keep moving forward, to be positive. But I can't you know, I can't I can't just take this these thoughts out of his head that he will never encounter these situations because he will. And he has when he was three, you know, so so it's hard being a mother of a young black son. You know, it's interesting because this time around, it, I mean, definitely, you know, when, when 2015 happened and, you know, the Trayvon Martin situation and every other situation, it definitely hit deep, you know, and each time one of these situations happens, it, it, it takes a piece of you. It takes a piece of your heart every time. But this time, I think it's because my son is old enough. To understand what's going on. It just hit differently. And I, I find myself going from crying, just sitting and crying, and then I get angry, and then I get mad, and and then I get, you know, I just start feeling sorry for everybody around me, sorry for my son, you know, and it's just like an emotional roller coaster, you know. I can totally understand why African Americans are you know, more likely to get chronic diseases. you know? I can understand why African Americans are are more likely to to suffer from mental health issues because I look at the stress that we deal with on an everyday basis, and I look at the stress that my six-year-old is now going through. and how do you how do you even begin to comprehend that? You know so for one, you know, we have to stop saying that African-Americans are more likely to get these chronic diseases like high blood pressure and heart disease, because if you really start to peel back the layers, it, a lot of it has to do with the, well, of course, the inequities in our community um, that were strategically placed there, but also just the, the stress of racism being so young, you know, and trying to understand how to navigate this world and, and still have to deal with that. It's a lot but um just watching the riots um i find myself stuck on cnn you know and and like i said before sometimes a disruption in society has to happen in order to really drive change so i sit and i watch it and it's unfortunate when we see the riots become violent you know but at the same time you know it's unfortunate what happens to these to these buildings, when, you know, when they get busted up or or people are looting or or the buildings are set on fire, but those buildings are replaceable, you know, and human lives are not. And, you know, one thing I've been saying is that it, it really is going to take for white people to to stand up and speak out on this if they really care about it because white people are going to have to be the ones to drive this change. African Americans have been marching for for decades, generation after generation, African Americans have been fighting for justice for so long and yeah, we've gotten we've gotten places, but we haven't gotten where we need to be. You know, and this time we're we're not fighting to Eat at the same table. We're not fighting to eat in the same restaurant. We're not fighting for our children to be able to go to the same schools as white kids. You know, it's deeper than that. So we need white people to be the ones to drive this change, and then maybe their white counterparts will say, "Okay, maybe this is the right thing to do," or maybe they'll be able to change the minds of you know some of the other folks. So that that's really. What I'm hoping for, you know, that we can all stand together in solidarity, but I really just want to see white people stand up and, and, and lead the way to drive this change. I feel a responsibility to change things, and I'm optimistic for this change. But my parents were optimistic, and their parents were optimistic, and their parents were optimistic. You know, my great-great-grandparents and great-great-greats were optimistic. So all, all I can do right now is pray that we actually do see that change. You know, I, I want to say that these, what's happening today is a lot different from what happened before. We've seen peaceful protest. We've seen kneeling. Um, and now we are seeing violence. We are seeing looting. And, and what we're seeing is a buildup of anger, rage, a buildup of years of injustice. You know, when you talk to some of these kids, teenagers or young adults, they break down, you know, and they, they talk about some of the situations that they've been through in school. They, the discrimination. They talk about, you know, just being outside and, and playing basketball and an officer coming over and being harassed by an officer. And, you know, it's upsetting when you get harassed and you, can, you have no voice and your voice is taking, taken from you. And each time that happens, you shrink more and more and more. So, what you're seeing is all of that, that boiling pot of mess exploding. You know, and and it's unfortunate, but I hope to drive that change. This is the first time we've ever had a Delaware legislative Black Caucus, and I'm happy to be on it. Um, and I'm happy to be on it as one of the youngest members. You know, and I'm I'm happy to be able to actually use my voice and my passion. There was a there was a time when I thought, how am I going to balance being A legislator and being a black woman, mother of a black son, a black wife. How am I gonna balance that without going too far to one side? And then I realized there is no balance. You know, there is no balance. I am going to be who I am and I'm going to speak up about the injustice. And I'm going to use my passion to drive this change. And I'm going to stay on that, on this side, the side of a, a black woman and a black mother with these experiences, because nobody who has, how can I say this? Let's just say everyone doesn't know what it's like to be me in this world, to be a black woman in this world, or even to be the mother of a black son, you know, Thinking about when he gets his driver's license, what's going to happen to my son? You know, will he be okay? Thinking about him being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Will you ever get that phone call that he won't come home? I think about that with my brother because he's in his 30s and he's a black male, you know, and you become so desensitized, you know, just expecting that to happen, you know? So you, instead of you know, fearing that it happens, you become this person that tries to prepare yourself for when it happens. And that, that's the hardest thing. It's like, when do you, when do you let go? When do you say there's a possibility that my son is going to have this issue or my son is going to be confronted with racism or police brutality and I won't be there to help him and I may get a phone call one day that my son's life was taken, you know, and you have to prepare yourself for that moment. And that's one of the hardest things to do as a mother.
1: You're talking about this buildup, right, mm-hmm. that led to this moment. And it was a lot of things. But in my mind, you don't get weeks of sustained protests, uh, unless we, you know, aren't in the middle of this pandemic, which has not only kept everybody home, but millions and millions of people have been laid off. That burden has fallen harder on the black community in the United States, harder than anyone else. Do you think that that has something to do with what's going on right now?
3: I think it's a mix of everything. You know, COVID is definitely unveiling the disparities that have already existed in the communities of color. So it's exacerbating it, you know, and we're seeing that African Americans are dying faster than whites we're, we're seeing that, you know, just just with that and looking at, you know, the underlying condi- there's always underlying health conditions and we're looking at the underlying health conditions and what has caused them. You know, and a lot of it has to do with the inequities in, in communities of color, you know, the lack of access to healthy food, the lack of affordable housing. And then you ask yourself, well, why do we need affordable housing? Because now we need to look at the lack of of um, access to quality education, you know, which leads to, you know, a job that may not be a quality position, a job that's really going to create a sustainable income. So I think that all of that mixed up in one, and we know these disparities have existed for a very, very, very long time, and they've gone unrecognized, or I don't even want to say unrecognized because people recognize that they exist. But nobody is intervening to build up the black community, you know, and a black community that was actually broken down by the government, you know, strategically, you know, so it's frustrating and you begin to feel neglected. You know, we, we see these issues. I mean, cause I mean, people call it all types of stuff. They say, Oh, implicit bias, you know, no, it's racism. You know, that's implicit bias is just a nice way of saying racism, you know, and I'm so tired of the fluff words too. But, um, you know, we see it in the workplace, you know, we see it in school. You know, my son was three when he was called an uncontrollable animal, you know, and, You look at my son and you think, wow, that kid? (laughs) You know, how? Like, this is the kid that he runs, he doesn't want to play sports because they're dangerous. You know, he wants to dance, tap, and ballet and play the violin. How can he possibly be uncontrollable? How can he possibly be animalistic, you know? But, you know, that's the perception that people have of African Americans. And, you know, it started a long, long, long time ago, but it has persisted for this long. I've seen comments on social media that are just, disgusting but when it relates to the protest during COVID-19 being a black woman you know I we know right now with everything going on with with seeing three people get killed within a month three black people get killed within a month that we know about that we know about you know and thank god for social media thank god for cell phones or else we wouldn't even know about those There's this there's this thing that comes over you and you're like, the time is now. I have to stand up and I have to get out there and I have to protest and I have to do something and that's why I showed up to the protest and I'm going to show up to the next protest because I have to do my part. And yeah, we still are concerned about COVID nineteen, you know. And I'm a nurse, so I'm still concerned about social distancing. You know, I'm still concerned about ensuring that people are wearing a mask. But. I begin to ask myself, you know, who would I be if I did nothing at a time like this, you know? And to be honest, I would give my life for my son to not have to be the next George Floyd. So that's why we're out there marching. And I know that every other black mom feels the same way. You know, that passion is driving us to get out of there and do it. So,
0: whip count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com DE House on Twitter at DE House and on Instagram also at DE House More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed.